Hello, and welcome back to the Hearsay Podcast. This is episode two of our human rights series. I'm Sarah Dallin, joined by Stephen Hodgson, Divya Chawla, and Robert Ballock. And today we'll be continuing our conversations with Professor Jean Munn and Chief Michael Gautil. In the spirit of reconciliation, we would like to acknowledge that hearsay is recorded on Treaty 7 territory. We acknowledge that Treaty 7 territory is the traditional and ancestral territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy, consisting of the Kainai, the Pakani, and Sazika, as well as the Sutina Nation and the Stony Nakoda First Nation. We acknowledge that this territory is home to the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3 within the historic Northwest Métis homeland. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit who have lived in and have cared for these lands for generations. We are grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who are still with us today and for those who have gone before us. We make this acknowledgement as an act of gratitude for those whose territory we reside on or are visiting. Jean Munn is a University of Calgary alumna, having completed both her undergraduate and law degree here at the university before being called to the Alberta Bar in 1989. Jean served as a member of the Alberta Human Rights Commission from 2015 to 2021 and continues to hear matters that were assigned to her during this term. Jean has extensive experience in all facets of immigration and employment law. After graduating from law school and articling with the Alberta Court of Appeal, Jean set up her own practice in association with other lawyers where she practiced criminal, family, immigration, and employment law, as well as labor arbitration. Ms. Munn was a partner with the Calgary law firm Carson & Partners until the end of 2020 and remains with the firm to support clients and junior lawyers. Outside of her legal practice, Jean has also worked as a sessional lecturer in the University of Calgary's Faculty of Law, where she currently teaches human rights law. She has also worked as an instructor at Bow Valley College, a guest lecturer at Calgary Legal Guidance, and has written extensively in the area of citizenship and immigration law for both Carswell and Calgary Legal Guidance. Jean is actively involved with Calgary Legal Guidance, volunteering since 1993 and serving on the board from 2011 to 15. She was awarded the Alan D. Hunter Award for Excellence in Volunteerism from Calgary Legal Guidance and is also the recipient of the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal, recognizing outstanding and exemplary contributions to society. In 2021, she was awarded the Distinguished Service Award from the Law Society of Alberta. Michael Gottile is the Chief of Commission and Tribunals of the Alberta Human Rights Commission, a role he assumed in August 2018. Mr. Gautel brings many years of leadership experience in the administrative justice sector, having previously served as chair of the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario and executive chair of both the Environment and Land Tribunals and the Social Justice Tribunals of Ontario. Since commencing his role at the Commission, Mr. Gautel has focused on improving meaningful access to human rights enforcement in Alberta by reducing the historic delays and backlogs in complaint resolutions. At the same time, he is driving the Commission to be more proactive, build capacity to address systematic discrimination, and to be a key partner in a diverse, inclusive, and just Alberta. Mr. Gautel has written and presented widely on justice reform, 
including the importance of tribunal independence and recruitment practices that value substantial knowledge, diversity, and cultural awareness. He has driven collaborative initiatives which understand the critical role community organizations play in making justice accessible and meaningful for those who need it most. As a person with a disability, Mr. Gautau is always open to sharing his experiences and to be inquisitive about others' differences, challenges, and insights. He is a firm believer that by listening and hearing diverse perspectives, we all grow stronger, individually and as a community. In, in terms of granting a remedy, and maybe I can ask Jean this real quick. We saw recently, again in the criminal context, that the Supreme Court allowed sentencing guidelines in the criminal context again. Are there any kind of guidelines for the for the tribunal when rewarding a remedy? Is that guided by any kind of instructions from up above? How does that typically function? I know because it would probably change over time because of inflation and stuff, but when you're thinking of rewarding a remedy, is there some kind of, like I say, a guideline? Not formally. So as Chief Godhill mentioned, um, the Alberta Human Rights Commission can award special or uh, general damages. And these are damages for injury to dignity, um, pain and suffering. Um, the case in Alberta for laying out factors to be taken into account is the Walsh and Mobile Oil case. And so the courts have laid out factors that um, tribunal members can take into account in deciding where that uh, amount of money should be. So um, historically, um, damages were, general damages were very low. Right now, um, if there's been a significant impact on the complainant, and if the respondent's behavior was not accidental, that is, if it was reckless or intentional, you can expect to see um, awards of general damages in the twenty-five dollars to $30,000 range. Recently, in a Court of Queen's Bench uh, decision, it was an appeal of a case called, um, oh, at the appellate level, it's Sunshine and Bowenish. Justice Devlin, um, when uh, dealing with a general damages award of $25,000, basically said, well, he did say, anything less than that $25,000 would have made the violation meaningless and would have made the human rights meaningless. So with that recent decision, I think that you will um, see general damage awards where there's been a significant impact on the complainant and where the behavior wasn't accidental or innocent, um, uh, you'll see damage awards start to climb from 25,000 upwards. And just before uh, letting Robert ask his question, I'm sorry, Ronnie, uh, Robert, I just had to ask this real quickly for our wider audience. Now, I know that within one year, they must bring the claim to the commission. Can the commission consider time beyond this in calculating remedy? 
like time prior to the one year can they consider if there'd been ongoing um, discrimination in the workplace and then they finally were fed up and within that one year beyond that can they consider that for remedy purposes well certainly for special damages so general damages are pain and suffering special damages would include um, all the usual things like lost wages lost income um, expenses that sort of thing a human rights tribunal in Alberta cannot award lost income for a period greater than two years preceding the date of the complaint. Um, but it can be, uh, they can award lost income um, into the future. And it's not limited by common law notions of uh, wrongful dismissal, for example, the common law notion of reasonable notice. Yeah, I would uh, just uh, one other thing on, on the damages. So a number of the statutes across Canada still have uh, limits on the amount of general damages that can be awarded. So for example, the federal statute, the limit is $20,000 and $40,000 if it was reckless and willful. Um, in, in Ontario, it used to be, I think, $10,000 but in 2008, when the reforms came in, they lifted that cap. Um, so traditionally, the legislation in Canada has had a limit on general damages that seems to be uh, lifted now, but there still is a, a lot of debate uh, within uh, you know, human rights circles and some excellent work done by Bruce Ryder, who's a professor at Osgoode called law school, uh, and, and you mentioned you know, inflation, and, and one of his uh, findings from a study was that you know, general damages have actually dropped over time uh, in the sense that uh, when, when, uh, when damages are adjusted for inflation, uh, the, the, you know, the, the general award, uh, just you know, based on precedent and so forth, uh, has not kept pace with with inflation, and so uh, there's a lot of debate. I think uh, you know uh, in Canada, I think healthy debate about about uh, you know the level of general damages for human rights violations. So, uh, Michael, you mentioned this case earlier, but I wanted to ask about it again. Formally, it's called Canada and First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada. But it came out of a human rights decision at the federal level, I believe, in 2016. And since then, it was uh, uh, went to the federal court on appeal, and the government of Canada lost. But I'm just wondering if you've been following along with that case, because I think for me, it's probably one of the more famous human rights cases I've heard of in my lifetime, or at least in my very short time in law school so far. Uh, so I'm wondering if you've been following along with it and uh, if you have been, kind of what are your, your thoughts on that? Is it sort of a, a, a revolutionary case in the human rights world, or is it just another day? Well, I think it's revolutionary uh, for a couple of reasons. And, uh, you know, certainly it's seen as revolutionary currently because of the value uh, and the amount of money the government has been ordered to pay. 
you know, in the billions. And I've, uh, I, I, I think it, it, it must be one of the, uh, you know, highest value human rights claims. But I think it, it was, it's revolutionary in, in a couple of other ways. Uh, first of all, um, you know, it, it was many, many, and you know, the, the majority of human rights cases, I think in Canada are individual claims, you know, individuals who say I've been discriminated, you know, perhaps somebody who was fired, um, because of a disability or not hired, alleged that they weren't hired because of race, uh, those sorts of things. Somebody, uh, you know, young woman who's fired because she tells her boss she's pregnant, those kinds of things. And, uh, I, you know, I don't want to say those aren't systemic in the sense that many of them arise because of, uh, you know, assumptions and uh, you know practice long-standing practices that have you know um, uh, discriminate you know amounted uh, to discrimination for for many groups and individuals uh, but we don't see that many systemic cases in the sense that that um, you know a systemic discrimination is when there's a policy, uh, which is perhaps not on its face discriminatory, but it has the, the, the effect, the impact is to discriminate against a group based on their characteristic. And, and, uh, and in the case we're talking about here, the argument was that, you know, for children who live on reserves, uh, Indigenous children who live on reserves, uh, essentially, you know, the, the government underfunds, uh, disproportionately underfunds um, health and education. So if you're a, a child in Canada and you live in Calgary or Edmonton, uh, you know, on average, there'll be X number of dollars uh, that's spent by the government on your health and education. If you're a child who lives on a reserve, I think it was less than half that was spent on your health and education. And uh, initially, what is really interesting about that case is the, the, the initially a tribunal had dismissed the case uh, because the, the tribunal said, the initial tribunal said, well, what's called the, the comparator group is not children who don't live on the, on the reserve, but the tribunal said there's no discrimination because the government funds health and education services for all children who live on all reserves across Canada equally. So there's no discrimination. And uh, that went up to the federal court and was uh, overturned. So it went, was sent back to the tribunal, to a different tribunal, who then uh, you know, came up with the decision it came you know that which is they found on on the facts on the evidence that indigenous children who live on the reserve are you know uh, their the funding for their health and their education is less than half of what children elsewhere in Canada. So I think it it was you know uh, you know quite groundbreaking in terms of the scope. Uh, it was 
you know, significant. And uh, anytime you have a large case uh, dealing with systemic discrimination, again, where, you know, this is government policy and there's generally a presumption that government is allowed to set policy, right? Um, and and uh, you can't, you know, that you can't attack government policy. The, there's legislative supremacy or the premise of legislative supremacy. So for all these reasons, I think it's a really significant decision. The other thing I would say is if people are really interested, there's a, a Cindy Blackstock who was the leader of, uh, you know, and, and uh, the, the, you know, really the thrust behind the case, she's written a fantastic article. I believe it is in the McGill Law Review, but I mean, if you Google Cindy Blackstock and the case, where she tells the whole story. And I think the story behind the case is also interesting because she was surveilled by the police, her social media, was intercepted. Uh, they went after her and the organization, the government of Canada, to try to undermine her personally uh, as she advanced the case. The other thing was just the, just, you know, using the force of the public and children and uh, just, you know, public uh, efforts behind the case. I think it all makes it a really, really fascinating story over and above, you know, the, the, the significance of the, of the legal decision. My understanding of the case now is that the government of Canada has appealed, but it is, I believe, paused. The litigation has been paused while they try and work out a settlement. So I'm wondering, Gene, maybe just what are your thoughts on, on this case? And do you have any maybe predictions on why you see it going and, and how it will impact human rights uh, human rights cases in the future? Well, I think that um, we're going to be all become very acutely aware of the government's role in systemically discriminating against Indigenous peoples and how that didn't end with residential schools in 1996. You know, the thing is, the, the complaints about the uh, Child and Family Services uh, funding um, in, this, in these cases uh, started in 2006, 2007. And the government fought these concerns and complaints. And there's also um, health funding involved. So social service, what we call social service, uh, the foster child system, uh, child protection, but also health. Um, uh, the services available for children, they started complaining about this in 2007. And it's now in 2021 in September that a decision from the federal court upheld um, a finding. Uh, well, first on the merits, you know, the government never um, challenged the decision with respect to whether or not discrimination was happening. What they then challenged was the amount of compensation. And the amount of compensation awarded goes back to every single child who was in the system at the beginning of 2006 and every single child who passed through the system after that date. And it is, it's a huge amount of money. 
And the, the question is whether or not um, it can be negotiated to be more reasonable for uh, the government of Canada, because it is, it's billions of dollars. And why should it be? At any rate, um, there have been political calls for the government to uh, withdraw its appeal. So the federal court made a decision. That's a judicial review application. They made the decision. Um, the appeal of that decision was filed in uh, November. So it's very recent. Um, and uh, how long it will be paused, I think both sides will be um, using uh, broader policy concerns in order to negotiate a settlement. But if it were to go to the Federal Court of Appeal, I don't think it's a done deal um, that it would be successful again, right? And this may very well be a case that ends up in the Supreme Court of Canada. So there's the amount of compensation. That's one of the issues, $40,000 a pop. And then the second part of, of that decision is eligibility. Who is eligible for the $40,000 a pop? And um, I, uh, oh, I agree with Michael, absolutely. Um, go to read about what Cindy Blackstock has been through in uh, the last 10 years over the uh, processing of this case, because it hasn't been um, just the decision in 2016. The complaints started in 2007. One of the things that was most striking to me, again, I hadn't had a chance to go too much into depth in the case. So before I actually read it, uh, I was operating on the understanding that maybe there was some disagreement about equity. I always assumed that in this context, people you know living far away would require more money for services so i assumed it was something to do with that but i listened to a podcast with dr blackstock and what shocked me the most was that as michael has highlighted that it wasn't even formal equality here so i really do hope they can you know come to some sort of um agreement on how to settle this because it was it was quite a, sh a shock quite frankly i'll stay tuned i uh uh, you'll now, I mean, now that you've had a look at this case, you'll understand when you hear the headlines about uh, withdraw the appeal or don't withdraw the appeal. Um, so our next question is um, regarding the ongoing project aimed at increasing Indigenous engagement with the Human Rights Commission. Um, so if you could just describe it a little bit and maybe talk about how it's progressing. I mean, the, the Human Rights Commission in, in Alberta has had a fairly long uh, standing uh, you know relationship with many indigenous communities in Alberta um, providing funding grant funding working with indigenous communities uh, to build local capacity education training on human rights and so forth but full disclosure um, last year a report came a, a report was commissioned by the British Columbia Human Rights Tribunal. Uh, the report's called uh, Expanding Our Vision. And the, um, the BC Human Rights Tribunal had, had uh, uh, hired, had engaged uh, uh, artist Walcom, uh, who's now Justice Walcom of the BC Supreme Court. Uh, she was previously a, a lawyer, indigenous lawyer in, in British Columbia. And she did 
just a really, really interesting study and report, uh, essentially asking the question, you know, why don't uh, Indigenous people and communities use the human rights system? Why don't, uh, you know, uh, certainly we know that Indigenous individuals and, 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 uh, and communities face discrimination in, uh, you know, in employment, in housing, in healthcare, uh, government services, and, and, and so forth. And yet, uh, you know, given what we just know about the experience of Indigenous people in Canada, uh, certainly an underrepresentation of Indigenous human rights complainants. And, you know, why is that? And, uh, and uh, so, and, it, you know, the, the, the answers, I think, are multidimensional. Uh, there are many factors. Anyway, so it's an excellent report, and I'd commend it to uh, anyone who, who, who is interested in, in this topic, and I think we all should be. Uh, if we're interested in reconciliation and and uh, how you know law and uh, indigenous relations, anyway, we thought at the commission that it was important, you know, in the context of the calls, uh, the TRC and the calls uh, to uh, the, the calls to action and the MMIWG, the inquiry into mission, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls calls for justice, of course, the discussions of the UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, it, you know, obviously the discussions about uh, residential schools and the discovery of unmarked graves. It, it was time for us to uh, take a, a, a much more active, uh, take, take much more active steps to, you know, interrogate what does reconciliation mean uh, what does uh, fairness, what does human rights mean for, uh, in respect of Indigenous people, for the Commission? And so we uh, developed this strategy, which is on our website. Uh, it, it, uh, part of that is we brought together um, uh, a group of uh, uh, an advisory circle of Indigenous leaders across the province from different communities, Métis, Indigenous, we don't have an Inuit, but uh, uh, 12 Indigenous leaders from across the province that will help guide us. We've, um, we've hired an external consultant to look at the commission and are there ways that our processes or our hiring practices, um, uh, the way we do our work that, you know, may be perpetuating or complacent to ongoing colonization and discrimination. Uh, we feel that if we're, we're going to say to Albertans and Alberta businesses and landlords and service providers, you need to look at yourselves, we need to look at ourselves. Uh, so these are the steps we're taking and it's certainly a work in pro, uh, progress uh, but, you know, the next steps will be to look at our complaints process um, as we start, you know, inquiring into where the barriers are. Uh, we are looking to, you know, provide support 
and the particular streams for indigenous complainants. Uh, we've hired some indigenous human rights officers uh, to have, uh, well, do training across the uh, commission, but also to provide uh, uh, you know, specific supports and services for indigenous communities. And the other thing that we'd like to do is to look at ways to be to have the capacity to address systemic uh, complaints. I mentioned before, you know, most of our complaints are individual complaints. Um, but you know, what about uh, are there issues? I mean, we know there are issues about the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in correctional facilities or in. Uh, in terms of discrimination, in, in terms of interaction with police, with the healthcare system, are these are there systemic elements to that over and above individual uh, interactions? And uh, you know, we have to ask ourselves at the commission: Do we have the capacity to take on those cases? I mean, they are uh, you know larger cases; they take uh, resources uh, in terms of policy, people who can work with statistics. Uh, it may take more legal resources, uh, dedicated re legal resources. So these are all the things that the strategy uh, uh, helps us, you know, essentially it helps us to commit to, uh, uh, you know, looking at the commission and asking these questions and then acting. The Hearsay Podcast is proud to present you with legal information but it is important to remember that this is information and does not constitute legal advice. We are law students, not lawyers, and this podcast is purely for informational purposes. If you do require legal advice, please consult a lawyer. Thank you for listening to the Hearsay Podcast. The Hearsay Podcast is a joint project between CJSW and Pro Bono Students Canada, University of Calgary Chapter. We would like to take this opportunity to thank CJSW for all of their support. If you would like to hear more podcasts like this, the Hearsay Podcast can be found on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.